Last week, Jack Hall came up to me. It was a really good conversation. And Jack said, you know, um, when you started talking about Abraham, I always thought Abraham was this amazing saint and learning that he came from a Gentile land where they were idolaters was really shocking. Remember that conversation, Jack? And uh, I think we often in the church think guys like Abraham, David, even, uh, you know, Daniel, we can't hold a stick to them. They are just saints. You know, they're above us. They're just better. And um, what we're going to learn today is they're just like us. Not only does God choose regular people, but sometimes he chooses people that are really weak, timid, and yellow-bellied cowards. It's hard to believe, but he picks people just like us to do his will. This message, if you, if you are one of the people that really believe that, you know, there's nobody like Abraham, and just a side note, in this story, he goes by the name Abram, and then later on, he's Abraham. So I'm just going to use either one. I might just call him Abe. We don't know. We'll see. I don't know what comes out of my mouth sometimes. But um, today, the story of Abraham, if you really listen, it's hard to believe. It's hard to fathom that somebody could stoop this low. Like this guy who's done amazing things for faith because he's the father of faith. I still can't believe God still uses him after what we read about him today. So if you can open up to Genesis chapter 12, the title of my message is If. And I want you actually, if you can, this is the bulletin. Cut this out later, put it on your refrigerator. I want this to be the word for the year. The ladies are actually going to go to a conference called If. But I want this word if to be rolling through your mind all year long, specifically even when your worst fears happen. If God is for us, if God is for us, how's the rest go? Let's read Genesis chapter 12, 10 through 20. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, I'm going to call her Sarah, Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, uh, just stop there a second. Sarah at this time is 65 years old. And Abram knows she is a knockout. Some people said, well, that's because they didn't age as quick. Maybe she's about a 25-year-old lady. Whatever the case, this woman is gorgeous. And I'm not saying that because I'm a male chauvinist. That's what it says here. God cares about beauty. Verse 12, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that this woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Just a side note, the princes of Pharaoh, usually princes are the sons of a guy, so they're telling their dad, Dad, you've got to get this woman. Strange story. Verse 15. And for her sake, 
He dealt with Abram, and he has, or he was given sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. That's where we're going to end. In the... I believe the essence of this message is if God is for you, nobody can be against you. Even when you're not faithful. So to begin, how do I know God is for Abram? Well, we've been talking the last three weeks. Three weeks ago we said that God called Abram out of his land. He went with his dad and he came to Canaan. And he said, this is going to be your land. So verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go. Verse 2, if you go, I will make you a great nation, which we learned about last week, so great that you and I will be blessed. All the nations of the world will be blessed. Verse 4 of chapter 12 says, Abram went, so he trusted God. He believed. Verse 5, he took Sarah, he took Lot, he took everything he had, and he went to Canaan. So verse 6, he passes through the land, he comes to this oak of Morah. Verse 7, at Morah, God shows up again and appears to him. In verse 7, he says, To your offspring, not just you, Abram, but to your offspring, I promise you, I'm going to give you this land. Remember we said when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. Verse 8, Abram moved from Morah, went to Bethel, pitched his tent, and he built an altar to the Lord to worship him there. So we can clearly say, Abram's a believer. He's a true worshiper. In fact, that's really all God wants in true, is true worshipers. In John 4.23, Jesus says, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What does God want? Does he want great people, guys to do amazing things, women to do wonderful things? He just wants worshipers. And when he finds a worshiper, they become his. And I want to bring, a, I'm going to start with this verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, because it is going to, it's going to be a reminder the reason why we can say if God is for us. Listen to what it says. So Paul is talking to people who believe, and he's saying, and I am sure of this. I'm positive. Let me tell you this. He who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful. He'll complete it. So if God finds a worshiper, somebody that's his, he's not going to let you go. If God is for you, no one can be against you and never, ever forget this. Why? Because the reason is simple. There will be days when your worst fears will be realized and you'll wonder in your heart, is God really for me? Has he forgotten me? Has he abandoned me? 
That's what I believe the lesson of this small little snippet of Abram's life is all about. I think God told it to us to show us that it can be so bad that everything will be taken away, but God's still for you. When fear comes upon you, it's hard to believe this. Fear is weird. Fear is the best way I can think of. It's like a dense fog that comes down. And then it blinds you to everything, but you hear and think there's monsters everywhere. And you can't see out of it and can't see your future. All you can do is focus on the present and you're overwhelmed. Sometimes it comes immediately. And when it comes immediately, there's this irrationality to it. Where you'll panic. Some people, when fear comes on, they, they feel defeated. They don't want to get out of bed. They quit. Some people, there's dread. Have you ever just felt dread? Like, I don't want another day to come. I think I told you a story before. I, there was a time in my life, I can remember, I would stay up as late as I could because I didn't like getting up in the morning. I'd watch movies like till 2 or 3 at night because the next day I had to go to work and I didn't want to go to work. It was dread. It's kind of like this immediate kind of dread is like when you throw, have you ever thrown a cat in a bathtub and they get me out of here! I can't stand this! That's what that immediate fear is like. But also, it can be that fog that just sits. And it never leaves. And if it keeps going this way, you tell yourself, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Fear usually shows up in three ways. And they showed up in Abram's life very clearly in three ways. The first one I'll call circumstantial fear. Circumstantial fear is something outside of you is happening, you have no control over, but it seizes you, and you can't see past it. And you don't think you have any future. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Now there was a famine in the land. Not just any kind of famine, it was severe. Remember, God just promised Abraham he'd have this land. Now it says there's a famine in the land. In, in Palestine area, which is Israel, where Canaan, it's very arid. And if it gets hot and not much water, grass will die like that. Rivers will be sucked dry. You can't feed your livestock. And so Abram, it says, went down to live in Egypt. Bible historians say Egypt was always fertile because they had the Nile River Valley Soil was silty, you could grow things there, and it would always pretty much avoid this famine that hit the arid regions over in Palestine. We'll learn this later with Joseph. When he lives in Egypt, he saves his whole family. But here's Abram, who was promised the land, leaves. He leaves pretty quick. Second kind of fear is relational fear. So he promised Abram he's going to have generations upon generations. Later it says he's going to have many kids as there's stars in the sky. But in order to have children, you need something as a man. You need a wife. You need a woman. And the problem is, we have verse 11 through 13. This is terrible. Listen to what it says. When he was about to enter Egypt, verse 11, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, man, they're going to take you. So I want to protect you. Right, Abram. You want to protect your wife. Right. So by protecting you, I'm going to give you over to be Pharaoh's wife. What a... Holy smokes. That's horrible. 
Say to, your, say to them, you're my sister. In a way, she was. She was the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. So she's a half-sister. But he doesn't tell them the whole truth. She's also my wife. Say, to, say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And so when Abram entered Egypt in 14, the Egyptians also saw she's beautiful. The princess saw she's beautiful. And they took her to be with Pharaoh. There's some speculation in verse 15. It says, And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her, and a woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What is, does that mean she slept with Pharaoh? There's some speculation. When you say you enter a house, you become that property right away, part of the harem. Other scholars say, well, if you read Esther, there's a, to become a queen, there's a preparation period, so possibly not. Whatever the case, whatever the case, I'm not sure if Abraham was happy about this. Sarah was not happy about this. Could you imagine thinking you lost the one person that all your hopes and dreams were pinned on? God said, Abram, through you and Sarah, I'm going to bless Sarah's gone. The relationship they once had, is, it's gone. You, the king of the world has your wife. As his wife now. And then um, moral failings here must have just haunted him. Had to destroy the whole self-concept of, God, I don't know how you can use me anymore. You gave me a promise, but I'm not sure you'd even want to use me anymore. I was a coward. I didn't believe you. I didn't stay in the land. I left at the first sign of drought. I gave my wife over. I'm nothing but a loser. One writer said, before when Abraham went from Haran to Canaan, he was confident he was in God's will, and therefore he knew he had assurance of God's favor and protection. However, now since he left the land, in his mind he must have felt vulnerable and alone because he quit on God. So why wouldn't God quit on him? So he was left to his own devices of Lying, scheming, running, and he must have been filled with shame. Abraham's worst fears, his worst fears, were now realized. Like he actually realized his worst fears. They, the problem with us is we're given the luxury of knowing the rest of the story. Like we're given the rest of his life, so we know it works out well. But if we stopped at verse 15, this is a terrible story. Some of you are like, well, verse 16 is kind of cool. Or look at verse 16. It's kind of cool. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, which means he didn't kill him. And he gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I mean, this guy made out like a king. For those of you who've ever experienced your worst fears, there is never enough money to take away the pain of a broken heart. Never. This is not a good thing. This does not compensate for losing your wife. Here, here's some camels. Bring them in the tent. So you're, that's not, they stink. This is terrible. Some of you, as you hear this, feel just like Abraham in this story. I mean, when you look to 2019... Or you look at your own life, 
Circumstantially, you might be having enormous fears. Financially, man, after Christmas, some people's bills stack up. How am I going to pay for those? Health fears. I know a number of people that have gone to the doctor again and again, and there's no answers. No answers. Some of you deal with getting older. What do I do about retirement? Will I have enough money to retire? Will I have anybody to care for me? Will I lose my mind? Relationally, maybe everything's falling apart for you. For some of you, the relationships you once had have fallen apart. For some relationships, it's kind of like dropping a piece of pottery on cement. just fractures in a million pieces. Can I pick it back up? If you're a parent, maybe some of your children are making decisions that are killing you. and There's no answers. No answers for a wayward son or daughter. And you wonder, does God even care? Does he see? Does, does he see? My worst fears are realized. Does he care? And then there is, and this is the darkest journey of all, the reality of your own soul and how dark and weak you really are. Just like Abraham, you wonder how God can use somebody like you and fix your failures. This struggle is real. I want to take a second on this because this is a real struggle. And I think this is the whole point of the New Testament to some degree. Scripture says, all of us, all of us are broken. No, not one is righteous. Not one. And so inside of us, Paul says there's a law at work. Romans 7, listen how he describes it. He says, when I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my heart, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. The law of sin at work in my members. And then he says, what a wretched man I am. What's wrong with me? How could God still use me or want me? Many of you wonder this. How could God be for me when I've messed up so badly? I'm sure Abraham felt like he failed God. He failed his wife. He failed his wife in every way possible. I mean, at least they could have died together, you know? Like, I'd rather die with my wife than have her taken by somebody and ravished. Some of you, when you look back in 2018, say, is it any hope for anything good to come out of my bad year? Or how can 2019 be any better? Some of you wonder about those who have sinned that you love, and you say, can God forgive them? Can I forgive them? There's another side to the struggle of the soul, though, and this is amazing. Jared mentioned it in his worship time, but we live with a promise-making God. He makes promises. And God never lies. And he never gives up on his own. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.13 again. If we are faithless, that means if we just quit believing, just give up on God, he will remain faithful. Why? For he cannot, and this is the kicker, he cannot disown himself. What does that mean? 
Here's what happens when I believe in Christ. When I believe in Christ, it says I'm filled with this Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, you've got to read Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 says, I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am sealed. That's a deposit guaranteeing me heaven, an inheritance to be had. So when I believe the Holy Spirit is sealed in my life, He lives in me. He lives in me. So what this is saying, God won't give up on Himself because when I quit Him, He's still with me. He's not going to quit. If God is for me, who can be against me? Because God's with me. It's an amazing promise to me. If we are faithful, Faithless, he is faithful. So even if you've acted faithlessly as Abraham has done in the story, if God is for you, who can be against you? So let's work this out. Let's, let's bring out the reality of this if-then statement. First of all, we're going to pick up in verse 16 where it says, and for her sake he dwell dealt well with Abraham. And then we get to verse 17. I'm gonna, I'll lead into this. So the first point I want to make, if God is for you, if you're his, if God is for you, he will never leave you nor forsake you even when you give in to temptation. No matter how you slice this story, Abraham bailed. He bailed on his wife. He bailed on God. He, he I don't, like, if he would have stayed in the land, God would have kept him alive. Why do you have to go to Egypt? In order to save his own hide. How many of us do things, sin, to save our own hide? Or get what we want when we shouldn't have it? Or lie? There's no reason in the world for God to stick with Abraham. Except for one reason. There is one reason God should stick with Abraham. He promised. God promised. When God promises, he's got to save his reputation. So while it seems to us that all hope is lost, we come to the beginning of verse 17. So you've got to look at it like this. You've got to read it like this. Abraham was promised Canaan, but he left. He was told that he was going to have all kind of children through his wife, but he gave her over to Pharaoh. And then we read 17, but the Lord. Maybe the most important words. This means behind, well, in, the, in the forefront of the stage, all this rotten stuff's happening, but in the back, in the background, the Lord is still working. But the Lord. It's the most important part of this whole story. You haven't forgot about him, have you? He's got more cards in his deck. God is getting ready to shine the sun while we're stuck in the fog to burn it all. My favorite story, and I use this a lot in my sermons because it means so much to me. This is a story when Jesus is in Galilee. He's on the water with his disciples. Peter and the disciples know Galilee inside and out. They grew up on it. They're fishermen. One day the storm comes over, starts blowing the waves, and Peter says, we're going to die. We're going to die. And you read the text and it says, but the Lord is sleeping in the back of the boat. But the Lord. The waves are coming over. They're about to flood them. But the Lord wakes up and tells it to shut up. 
It's an amazing story. It's a great story. You, uh, you may be broke, and it may be because you spend money like a drunken fool, but the Lord has people who can help you. You may be sick, but the Lord can heal. You know what? You may have destroyed relationships, marriages, friendships. You may have sinned against someone you love, but the Lord forgives. If God is for you, who can be against you? I just want to take a quick side note. This is, this is really important in the struggle just because this isn't, say, go sin willy-nilly. God will allow a son or daughter to struggle and even give in to temptation, but in the middle of the sin, he is still working behind the scenes. He uses sorrow, pain, shame, bitterness to discipline and cleanse the soul. To cleanse the soul. Real shame and embarrassment work like a cauterizing fire that will burn into you new convictions and principles where you'll never want to feel that humiliated and ashamed again, so you'll quit sinning. God loves you so much. He will often allow you to get caught and tangled up so deep in your sin that when you are finally released, you'll never want to experience the chastising fires of godly sorrow ever again. I know this personally. It's unbelievable. Paul says it like this. Godly sorrow produces eagerness to clear yourself, indignation, alarm, longing, and a readiness to see justice done. God won't let the sinner who's his go. It's amazing. It's amazing. Number two, if God is for you, he will defend his reputation in your life even when the odds seem too overwhelming. Sarah went to be with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a he was the most powerful man in the world. And all the princes saw this lady and said, that lady, that lady's fine. Pharaoh, that lady. So Abraham gives it to her. Seems like there's, there's no way. There is no human way to fix this problem. None. Will God rescue his own? Well, let's read. Let's read verse 17. It's kind of interesting. But the Lord, remember he's working behind the scenes, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now let's stop. What does that mean? Did Pharaoh have boils all over his body where he's scratching? I, maybe. You know what probably happened? He woke up and there's frogs all over his, you know, all over his bedroom. What in the world? Plagues are all over. He's probably getting bit by gnats or maybe... He went to jump in the bathtub and it's full of blood. I don't know. It's crazy. Plagues all over his house. But he knew one thing. You know when these things started? When you brought that woman in here. Get her out of here. And he does. He rescued Sarah. Not because Abraham was a good man, but because they're his. Abraham's his. His children. They were restored because they were His. Why would God restore a foolish son or daughter? Because you are His son or daughter. You're His. If you've ever had a kid 
If you've ever had a child, they are your child. They're yours. Regardless of what they've done or how they hurt you. And when you have a child, you will do whatever you can to see them fully restored. I grew up in a family of six kids. And uh, my brothers and sisters, they did a lot of bad things. Me, I was perfect. But my brothers and sisters, I'm kidding you. My parents just didn't know about it. But my, one time, and my sister gave me permission. She doesn't mind me sharing the story. One time my sister Gina took a carton of eggs. Her teacher gave her a bad grade, so her and her friend went to the teacher's house and egged it. Nice white house, rich house. Egged it, full of eggs. And that's not good for a house. And they called the police. They got the license of my sister's house, and two cop cars came screaming in our driveway, and they were interviewing my sister in the front living room. My sister's like, Dad, I'll never forget her just getting interviewed by all these cops sitting in the living room. My dad came upstairs in my bedroom and said this to me, Chris, you need to treat your sister as you always have. She's your sister. God's name is on us. He will defend his own. One of... Um, my biggest prayers that I use from the Bible, I want you to go to the book of Daniel. I want you to see something. This is my favorite prayer to use in the Bible. It's in the middle of the, uh, right after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you get Daniel. And I want you to go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is praying a prayer. To make a long story short, God's people were slaves and they're going to come back and they were promised a certain amount of years, and Daniel knew this was the time they were to come back. So he's praying, saying, God, make this happen. So here's where the prayer starts. Well, it starts way before, but I want to start in verse 16 of Daniel 9, and watch how he prays. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because from our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all of those around us. It means your reputation is not good, God. Because of us, not because of you. You're righteous. It's us who failed. And here's his prayer, verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer. Listen to my prayer. And his pleas for mercy and answer for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Actually, verse 18 continues. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation, a city that is called by your name. Here's how he's praying. He's saying, God, we have sinned. We failed, but please restore those places that you possess, which is your city and your people. I pray this often for myself because I, I often, I'm in a position where I stand up for Christ or even as a Christian, people know I'm a Christian. And I fail a lot. And I pray, God, your name is on me. You've got to protect your reputation. Not because I'm any good, but God, you've got to protect yourself, in a sense, from me. And he does. He does. Because we're His. His name's on us. The third thing, if God is for us, He will bless you abundantly even when you know you don't deserve it. 
Let's go back to verse uh, 20, 16 and 20. Chapter 12, Genesis 12, 16 and 20. If God is for us, he will bless you abundantly, even when you know you don't deserve it. So in verse 16, it says for her sake, um, meaning for Sarah's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he gave Abraham sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and the big kicker, camels. I mean, I, I was reading there was more stuff from commentaries on the big deal that camels are. Some people said, oh, camels didn't live back then. But others say, camels were like, he's giving you all kind of limousines. Here, take some. Camels were it back in the day. He gets servants. New livestock. This is kind of like the seed of his new empire. He gets it all. Why? He was a schmuck. Why? He didn't deserve any of this. I know. I know he didn't. But he's God's. God will bless you abundantly even when you don't deserve it. Verse 20 says, And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he just... Let him go. Let him have all that stuff. Don't touch him. If you touch him, I'll probably have another bloodbath tonight. You know, don't touch him. Did Abraham deserve this? No. God uses the wealth of a godless man to increase the holdings of Abraham, the faithless one, because God is faithful. We do not receive things we deserve. This is, this, is not, this is not a name it, claim it thing. This is a family thing. We're, we're, we're the children of the Father. And you know what the Father can do? You know what the Father can do? The Father can do amazingly, abundantly, above anything you can think of, hope for, or ask for. He can do more than that. And He has. God blesses because he makes a promise with you. I want to um, I want you to turn to Romans 8, 31, where I got that verse. Romans 8, 31 and 32. My concluding statement, I want you to realize, even if your worst fears come true, who can be against you? See, the problem is when our fears come upon us, you and I, that's all we see. That's all we think about. That's why a lot of us are miserable all the time. The prayer partners this morning, I don't see any of them there. They were kind of, Doug is here. Doug, are you here in the crowd? Yeah, Doug. Doug was miserable, prayer partners, this morning. And the other prayer partners were miserable. And I'm like, why are we so miserable? If you were watching the news, the news makes you miserable. Everything can make you scared and miserable. The world is always falling in. But instead of looking at the fear, look at grace. Look at what you've been given. Look what Romans 8 says. And you've got to follow the logic. It's unbelievable. Romans 8, starting in verse 31, he's just talked about all of these things that have happened for a Christian. How you were a sinner, but God saved you by faith, and then chapter 8, the Spirit walks with you, and in verse 31 he says, what then shall we say? 
to all of this. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he elaborates a little bit more. He who did not spare his own son. All right, stop right there. What does that mean? He who did not spare his own son. Spare means God gave him up. Who did he give up? His son. And I like to think of this in terms of wealth. How wealthy, how much wealth did God give up when he gave up his son? Well, we know that Jesus made all things, and not by Jesus, all things exist. So everything that's physical was made by Jesus in the first place. Actually, Isaiah says Jesus is the one that tossed the stars in the sky with his fingers, and he can number each one, and he knows every name of them. So Jesus is kind of wealthy. Like, he's kind of priceless. Like, it says that he's so priceless where you, like a human soul, you can't pay enough money for a human soul, but Jesus' blood pays for it. So, I mean, this Jesus was given over for you. He died. God spent him for you. He cashed him out for you on the cross. I mean, do you believe that in a second? I mean, do you really believe that? So this, God spent the whole world for you. And then it says in verse 32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He already broke the bank. If you ask him for a penny, it's nothing. It's like if a dad says, hey son, here's a, I was thinking about it, I said it first service, here's a hundred bucks. And the son says, can I have an extra penny with that? It's more like, here's son, here's a million dollars. Can I have an extra penny with that? That's what prayer is like, an extra penny. Even if your worst fears come true, if God is for you, who can be against you? 